This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Charlie Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Today on CityCast Denver, when Federico Pena was elected mayor in 1983, downtown Denver was struggling. The oil boom was about to go bust. People couldn't stop talking about safety and crime, and businesses were fleeing for the suburbs. Sound familiar? Pena famously imagined a great city anyway, so we invited him on the show today to talk about how he brought life back to downtown and how our next mayor could too. Today is Thursday, February 9th. I'm Paul Caroli in for Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. Federico Pena, welcome to CityCast Denver. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I want to start by drawing a comparison between your first term in the early 80s and the situation facing our next mayor, whoever it may be. Can you tell me a little bit about the challenges facing downtown Denver when you entered office in 1983? Uh, Paul, things were very unique uh, at that time in the history of the city. Uh, In the late 70s, Denver went through a pretty significant growth spurt. And then when I was elected in 1982-83 and took office in 83, we were at the tipping point of that growth spurt. And then about a year after I was elected, we went into a recession. And it was a very difficult recession. And one of the byproducts of that recession is that downtown essentially started to die. Uh, Our downtown vacancy rate for Class A office space was 30%. We had record bankruptcies, record foreclosures. Every sector of the Colorado economy was in the tank. Every sector, from agriculture to manufacturing, everything. Because of that, we lost all of our major department stores. Uh, All of the major retail centers moved to the suburbs. The only retail center we had that was, I'm going to say, competitive, and I'm going to put that in quotes, was the Cherry Creek Shopping Center. Mm -hmm. But that was before we rebuilt it with the developers. Mm -hmm. So it was a very difficult time for the city. And so we had to (laughs) make a lot of strategic investments and work very hard to to not only revitalize the city and diversify the economy, but, but equally importantly, if not more importantly, really bring downtown back. Yeah, I mean, that's the part that really resonates with me looking at the city today is that like that though the retail centers leaving and all the, the vacancy rates so high. Um, but I want to ask you about that one word you just said strategic, you made strategic investments. So you're credited with pushing forward projects like the airport, the light rail, new convention center, luring Major League Baseball. But how, how did you know which of those things were strategic? Which were the things that were the right things to focus on? It's important when you are making strategic decisions that you simply don't copy what other cities are doing. And oftentimes Hmm. it's very tempting to say, oh, well, New Orleans has an aquarium. Why don't we? Well, 
as we learned the hard way, this is after I left office, it may not have made sense to have an aquarium in, in Denver. We're in the middle of the country. We're in a semi-arid environment. The point is, when you reinvest and when you make strategic decisions, you should focus and build on your natural assets. Mm. So, for example, we knew that Denver was already a popular place to visit, so build a new convention center. And and then Mayor Webb, after I left office, built a new one on top of that one because there was so much interest on the part of people around the world to visit Denver. We're in the middle of the country. We're unique. We have this sort of interesting Western historic background, and yet we touch the modern. So that was one thing that was very important. Um, we knew that when people came to Denver, they liked our downtown, even though it was struggling. It was It's a clean city. So we wanted to invest in more retail. So the shops of Tabor, which were started by Mayor McNichols, um, you know, they were finished when I was mayor. That became a major asset for, for downtown Denver. What was lacking was housing. We knew that to have a vibrant city, what we call a 24-hour city, you needed housing. So we went to work, developed the, the downtown area plan <clears throat> with the Denver Partnership. So we started making investments, working with developers, et cetera, and look at, look at the city today. We've got, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000 people living in downtown Denver, if not more. And that's key to the vibrancy of, of, of downtown. Hmm. So we're we trying to, to build on our assets. And, and that's what I mean about trying to, to to make something unique. So, for example. Well, sir, sorry to interrupt, but I, I just I have to ask about something you said ahead, a minute Paul. ago, that that housing piece in particular, that's obviously very much still an issue in Denver today. Um but I know one of the other things that you've been credited with is is helping to create Lodo's historic district. And I think those two things, housing and like historic preservation, they're often, you know, in conflict with each other. There's, there's this tension between them. Um, and that's something else I wanted to ask you about. How do you how do you feel about that tension? Like, wh- how do you feel about balancing the historic preservation and then the need to make way for the new? It can it can be done. And we did it. So let me be, be very specific. We were very focused on preserving our history. And at the same time, building our economy, because our economy was in the doldrums. So we argued that you can develop downtown and, yes, preserve lower downtown. So we made 20-something blocks of lower downtown a historic district. It only passed by one vote in city council. It was very controversial. A lot of property owners said, you're going to kill our, our economy, et cetera. Well, it turned out that Lodo became probably the most expensive property in the city and one of the most interesting places for people to invest. So if you do it strategically and thoughtfully and you balance those interests, you can still grow the economy and protect your history. Hmm. So with the history piece, you're saying it's about just like picking the right spots, like picking the places that have the potential? Absolutely. So when you look at what we call Lodo today, What people don't realize is that prior to my administration, the country went through a reconstruction of downtowns uh, to build, for example, highways coming through the city, like I-70. And a lot of old buildings were torn down because the thinking back then was, if we wanted to have urban development, you need to build new things. So throughout the country, a lot of old structures were demolished, and that was happening in Denver. And when we had the recession, proper owners were saying, well, I've got this empty building. Let me tear it down and turn it into a parking lot. At least I can make money with a parking lot. And we said, no, if you do that, that building's gone forever. And so we put in the Lodo Historic District. Today, it is virtually impossible for any of those buildings to be torn down. 
but people built into those buildings offices and restaurants and art galleries, and they took advantage of the historic nature of those buildings. That's what I mean about strategic investments and balancing rebuilding your economy but protecting your history. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is, like, surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade. Hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. So we've been talking a lot about stuff that you you built or projects that you started, but I feel like that's only half of the the puzzle here. The other half is people. Like you don't really know how someone's going to react to a new airport if they're going to be excited to actually go out there. What did you learn about people during all of this this process about like how people relate to their city? What what do what do you think people actually want? What I learned, Paul, was that people are basically very smart. And by that I mean and I don't, that's not a throwaway line, by the way. I mean that. Voters are very smart, but they have to be given information. Once you give people information, once you take the time to go to neighborhood meetings, which I did, to go to business association meetings, which I did, to go to Rotary Club meetings, which I did, and you explain why you want to do certain things, I would say 60 to 70% of the people will say, you know what? I now understand why you want to do that. I now understand why you want to build that airport 25 miles outside of the city and you want to tear down the old airport. Now, was it 100% of the people who, who agreed? No. But you can get 60 to 70% of the people to support your vision, but you have to take the time to give people information. And I did that. My, my team did that. For example, people thought that if you built a new airport, your property taxes are going to go up. And I had to do what I call airport 101 lessons and say, no, airports are financed by the fuel taxes, by the airline leases, by the, 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 the concessions out there. City taxes are not used to pay for building a new airport. People didn't know that. Hmm. And once we explained that and we said, no, your, your sales tax, your property taxes are not going to go one penny to the new, new airport. It's going to be financed by the airlines and by the concession and that, by the people who use the airport. Then they started to support it. But you have to take the time to explain things to people. And that's what I mean. Once people get the information, they're very smart. And they'll say, oh, I now understand. Let's go do it. Okay, well, let me ask you about the current race, because we got 17 candidates right now. We're all competing to, you know, make a statement, make a splash, stand out in some way. I'm sure you've been paying attention at least a little bit. What are you listening for from candidates to tell that they're the kind of person that could do what you did? Number one, and I have spoken to a number of the candidates already because they've called me for advice or my endorsement. I haven't endorsed anybody yet. But what I basically say to everyone is, Number one, be specific. Don't just say you're going to fight crime. Tell me exactly how you're going to deal with the crime issue. Tell me exactly how you're going to deal with homelessness. Tell me exactly how you're going to deal with the pollution problem we have or the traffic congestion we have. That's number one. Number two, I want to see a vision. 
where do you believe the city should be in 10 or 20 or 30 years? I had a vision. It's called Imagine a Great City. And I think subsequent administrations have built on that vision. And that consistency of vision and strategic thinking is what makes Denver unique among cities in the country. So I'm looking at these candidates and saying, what's your new vision for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years? And then the third thing I, I ask candidates is, show me how you're going to get things done. What kind of a team are you going to attract? I was very blessed because we were inundated with thousands and thousands of resumes from people who wanted to be part of my administration. I needed committees to screen all the resumes. That's how many people we had who wanted to be part of this team. I want to see that same excitement. Yeah, I mean, there's clearly something there about like just getting people energized, getting people behind this vision that you had, or, you know, imagine a great city. I, I, I'm not seeing that right now in this race. There's no nothing cohering around any one candidate or any one vision. I mean, do you have any advice for how to how to put put a vision together out there for these candidates? It, it's a little early in the sense that when you have so many candidates, it's hard to focus. Um, when I ran, there were seven candidates running, and I think it was not until the runoff, and I had a runoff in both my elections, that people were able to really focus on what I was talking about and and, and my vision. But my advice to the current candidates is don't wait for a runoff, because if you want to be in a runoff, you're going to have to demonstrate you've got that vision. And so what I ask people to do is to think about what your bold vision is, and then what are the components of that vision to accomplish it? Is it safety? Is it dealing with homelessness? Is it revitalizing the economy? Is it dealing with housing? What are the five or six or seven subsets and strategic components that will cumulatively achieve your vision? And that's what I want candidates to explain to voters. All right. To wrap up, I have to ask you, I know you said a second ago you haven't made any endorsements yet, um, but here we are. I know listeners would be curious. Are there any candidates that have caught your eye? Anyone in particular that, that you're interested in? Well, I'd, I'd rather not say, Paul, because I've spoken to a number of them and we keep those conversations very confidential. So I'm still taking a wait and see attitude, Paul. So right now I have no advice for your listeners other than other than to, to pay attention, uh, to follow the candidates very carefully, and please vote. Please vote. We, we just had a school board election recently. Mm -hmm. You know what the turnout was? 30%. That means 70% of the eligible did not vote in the school board election. And that's why, and I'm going to say this very publicly, we have a dysfunctional school board. And we have a school board that is not producing and not helping the students and not focusing on academic performance. So let's not make that mistake in this mayoral race and city council race. Let's have a high voter turnout. Let's have high expectations of these candidates. And let's demand specificity and answers and solutions from all these candidates. But it's up to us as voters. If we don't re demand that, I can tell you what the result's going to be. We were, we're not going to have the best candidates serving us for the next several years. So get out and vote and um, uh, ask difficult questions and challenging questions of the candidates and uh, have, have, have high expectations and have high standards. Well, there you go. I love it. Maybe we'll have to check in a little later on, see if you've changed your mind about uh, making an endorsement. Okay. Well, Federico Pena, thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate the conversation, Paul. Thank you. And here's what else Denverites are talking about. 
580 acres of prairie grasslands, creeks, and bald eagle habitats. Denverite reports that the airport recently turned over control of all that land to Denver Parks and Rec. This marks a massive expansion for the First Creek open space, which is now technically the largest open space in Denver. Parks and Rec reportedly plans to connect this open space around the airport with trails to Montbello, Green Valley Ranch, and the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. And maybe, someday, even allow the Arsenal's herd of bison to roam all the way out to DIA. Watch out, Lucifer. And hey, here's some exciting news from us. We're gearing up for another local food battle. These have been punishing in the past, but this one might require the biggest sacrifice yet. We're going to pick Denver's best hot sauce. And we want to sample every local hot sauce we can find, no matter how hot. So if you know someone who started making their own during the pandemic, or if you've got a favorite local hot sauce company, let us know. Leave us a voicemail with your name and neighborhood, and we'll track down that hot sauce. Our number is 720-500-5418. That's 720-500-5418. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell DIA's CEO, Phil Washington, about us. Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, by texting Denver to 66866. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See ya. Hello? Is this Paul? This is he. Hello, Paul. This is Federico Pena. Good morning. Good morning. How are you today? Uh, Busy, but everything's good. No major crises. That's a good thing. But uh, just lots, lots to do.